Hi everyone, welcome to AOR uh, Lives. I'm Hedge. Today I'm going to be sitting down with uh, Caitlin and Nina. We're going to be talking about parkour, politics and power. Uh, this conversation uh, slightly comes out of the last talk that Caitlin and Izzy did with me a couple of weeks ago, which was on um, architecture and art and space. And Nina was really interested in the topic and wanted to take um, the discussion uh, towards the politics of space. And so the three of us sat down and got together. We thought it was a really interesting topic, but it was also a really difficult topic. And uh, we don't really know where it's going to go or how it's going to play out. So we're going to try and have a discussion about something difficult, which is one of the things that I kind of want to do with this podcast. Now that we've gotten over the initial, hey, let's interview a dozen people. Let's now try and have interesting conversations about parkour. So that's what we're here trying to do. So please bear with us if there's any issues as we try and navigate these difficult topics. And hopefully it will be entertaining for you all to hear about. So let me turn to my guests. Caitlin Pontrella is a founding member and current director of the United States Parkour Association, executive director of Parkour Visions and the director of Art of Retreat. Over the past 10 or so years, she's worked in both private and public sector, founded parkour companies, leadership events. She's worked with city governments to incorporate play initiatives, and she's built over 40 pop-up playgrounds along the way. She has a degree in architecture, is a play researcher, a burner, and a prolific writer. Um, Nina Ballantyne is everyone's favorite uh, parkour grand. She sometimes teaches parkour for fun, but mostly lobbies governments to make changes to social security, housing, and employment where they're needed most. Nina's a director at Parkour Outreach, helping deliver the first ever Coach Europe event last year, and she recently launched a community directory of online training and classes, making uh, those available for parkour practitioners during lockdown. She used to be a postie. Um, so yeah, let's start off. Caitlin, do you want to give us a bit of a breakdown of public spaces and the overview of the politics surrounding access to public spaces and why parkour really wants to remain in the public eye and stay in those public spaces. Uh, sure, that's a big first that's talk. Um, I feel like we could spend the whole hour on that, to be honest, but we'll see what we can do. <laughs> that, is, that is the talk, right? <laughs> that is the whole topic, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm trying to figure out the best way to kind of Point perspective on this. Uh, so my background is in architecture, um, and one thing I've always really liked about parkour in particular was that it sort of subverted the kind of uh, directive nature of a lot of urban planning, and that um, I always felt like it, I, I've always called myself as like kind of like anti parkour park or anti gym, and it's not that I can't enjoy those spaces, but um, when pushing policy and land development, I would not choose a parkour park over having some other kind of multi-use active space because I think that parkour um, existing on the streets is um, incredibly important. Uh, the practice of parkour uh, is like subverts sort of the oppressive nature of the way cities are designed, telling you where to go and what to do. You know, sidewalks walk in this direction. Um, different pieces of infrastructure have very specific uses. Um, and parkour's conversation with the city uh, also is a way to wake other people up to um, the potential of reuse and also having a, an experience of self-ownership in the place you live. 
Um, I think there's a lot of communities who don't really feel like they belong in the cities or the cities aren't designed for them or taking them in consideration that they're an oppressed population. Um, and parkour is a way to exert yourself back over your city um, and reclaim it for yourself. I'm not really sure if that's like a great way to jump off here because I did actually have a plan on how to jump off. No worries. No, that's good. So the kind of the, the basic idea you're talking about is that parkour is interesting because it's happening in the public. Um, and that's kind of where we want to start this conversation about. Um, so Nina, I was going to have you talk a little bit about parkour jams uh, and how you see them and why you think that they're so revolutionary and important in many ways. So maybe the first thing is just to amend that slightly that it's more that jams have revolutionary potential rather than like necessarily being revolutionary um, in and of themselves. Um, but part of that is to do with what Caitlin mentioned in terms of demonstrating to the wider population that you can um, kind of mess with the expected uses of space um, and the expected actions of people in public. Um, but there's also, there's kind of two main areas and one is about the physical space which Caitlin touched on but the other is about the people um, because for me politics is about people and about the power and um, that certain groups of people have over others. Um, so in the space kind of question I think jams are amazing because there's there's almost no other area where the barrier literally doesn't exist to the jam space and the not jam space so mm -hmm. you don't have to pay a ticket at a clubhouse. You don't have to go and rent gear. You don't even have to like cross the edge of like a football pitch line to be in the space where the thing happens. It, it's in the real world. And I think that has huge potential. Um, and then moving away from the kind of the physical space, for it, I think parkour jams are amazing because they not only in kind of forced connections with non-parkour people you know you're in space that other people are using they see you you see them you have to share that but the mixed ability nature of jams and the way that people do learn from each other is really cool and um, it's really unusual to mixed ability training with quite such a diverse range of abilities in almost any other practice um, unless it's like a specific uh, learning environment like an explicit class mm -hmm. um, and I guess just on that, the, I'm not just talking about learning from people who are physically more capable than you, um, but one of the cool things about jams is that you also have the opportunity to learn from people who physically might have uh, more limited abilities than you, but stuff about their attitude, about their approach to the situation, about how they see the space can really open your eyes. Like I, I've been to a few big events where someone who's smashing out like huge precisions or um, really impressive physical feats actually says in the day the thing they found most inspiring was the person who was starting parkour for the first time and was just giving it their all on like that one little jump and I think that's really cool and it teaches us that we have something to learn from everyone um, and that potentially we have something to teach everyone as well which I think that's uh, really cool for leveling out kind of power dynamics um, and also they're free like that's really <laughs> radical no one's making any money at a jam. No one's paying to be there. There's kind of indirect stuff to do with like sponsorships and filming and you know whatever right. else later on. But the kind of core of it, there's there's no money involved, and that in itself is just 
massively unusual. Yeah. <laughs> I also, I kind of want to add one final point to all those things you said, because you touched on it, but the fact that so many jam spaces are liminal in nature, that there's no, there's no start and no end, like often the way they actually happen in real terms is that there's a group of younger people somewhere working here and they're at the jam. But there's also another group of people who are friends and who don't really fit into that group who are over here and they're at the same jam because the jam doesn't really have a start or a finish. And then someone can come along and they can be watching and then maybe they go off a little bit and they try. I love the fact that because there are so there are no rules within this box of what is and is not the jam, um, it actually presents this really unique anarchaic sort of vibe which i think we can get into or not into depending on how you want do you to mean do it archaic or anarchic Anar like anarchy anarchic. or anarchic cool, cool. Um, um yeah i think that's totally true um and also like where where jams take place can be somewhere that you wouldn't go for any other reason um mm -hmm. and, and where they are not in terms of the obstacles there but where they are in, in relation to other things in the city um can potentially teach people a lot as well. Like university campuses are quite common uh, for parkour spots because they tend to have interest in architecture and they're quiet at the weekends and holidays and stuff. But they're also limited because they tend to be far away from, for example, like poorer areas in a city. So if you want to go train at the university campus, you have to get a bus and you have to pay for that. So there's all these things built into where the spot is compared to everything else in a city that's really interesting as well. And if it's at a housing estate, for example, or a shopping centre, it's likely to be busier, but you have to navigate other people's relationship with that space as well and figure out a way to coexist there. That references an idea that I know, Caitlin, you're a big fan of, which is that idea of motility and the use of different spaces. Do you want to jump in there? Yeah, sure. Actually, um, so uh, speaking a little more, I, I can't really speak terribly heavily to European contemporary urban planning. Um, but in America, most of our cities have been designed by rich white men, um, you know, who have very particular ideas about who should have power in what spaces and who should have, and what the hierarchy of like movement is. Um, I think over the last 10, 20, 30 years, you've seen a big rise in the challenging of that, those uh, built in assumptions in our city of like, again, who has the right to the city. Um, and parkour obviously is a part of that practice, as well as like the rise of like tactical urbanism or guerrilla urbanism um, and people sort of challenging, um, again, the way that uh, spaces were intended to be used um, with their own ways of what's potential. So um, possible, I mean, so uh, the, the word you just brought, motility, um, it's appeared in medical journals, but it was really uh, taken and reclaimed by an author called Mimi Schiller. Scheller in a book called Mobility Justice, which sort of talks about the uh, inherent injustices uh, in a lot of our systems. And she talks about flows at all levels from both the body moving through space up until up to like cars through uh, global information and goods and infrastructure. Um, but the study of motility is the idea, of, like, especially inside and brief context inside parkour is, you know, some spaces have greater movement potential than others um, and parkour practitioners essentially essentially exploit this potential, um, revealing and exploring the, again, inherent potential for movement in any, any given space or with any piece of given infrastructure. Um, 
And that doesn't mean just like physically, but also politically. Um, so the fact that you know, there are a lot of spaces, especially again in America, that are heavily policed, and I don't necessarily mean just by security forces or just badged, badged wearing individuals, but also the public self polices. Um, and parkour is also a uh, practice that uh, disrupts and challenges people's uh, sense of space and appropriateness and um, uh, I got told by an old man today, he said, he kind of looked at me on the wall and he went, is that sensible? <laughs> well, still that's a question. Yeah, and the thing is though, like, there's also like the generalized perspective that people carry about how space should be used is often inherited from, again, our white, uh, wealthy class uh, landowners and designers who uh, created these cities. Um, and there's whole populations who are shut out of that, like, again, the voice of the city, how, how we're going to use our city. Um, and that's that's also, by like, going back to what I tried, trying to articulate the very start here, is that, like, why I'm actually not super pro parkour park is that, and the value of gems as well, being in, in public spaces. I think that practicing in the public eye, um, while it can be scary at times um, and challenging, um, is really important, just politically, because you have people then forcing to confront the use of the city um, and there are a lot of people who like they don't even realize that they don't actually like believe it, that people should be driving the city or deciding how the city is used like citizen driven uh, city design you know many cities were designed for cars or the flow of goods and um or again making the lives of the wealthy elite um easier um and parkour is definitely not just an empowering uh exercise but um, when practicing the public, it forces other people to also confront their own assumptions of what is and is not appropriate. And even if they're not really necessarily ready to change their mind on it, the fact that you've now used that bench differently or you're finding a creative repurposing of that scaffolding or whatever it is, um, it at least creates the question in their head that will continue to be present every time they're engaged with it and can potentially lead to change. Yeah. And mm -hmm. demographically, the practitioners themselves I think there is the opportunity, like it's not always realized, which is why I was talking about like its potential, but for practitioners, if people don't feel comfortable in spaces that are normally for people viewed as elites, if they first experience with a university campus is not as an intimidating and um, unachievable goal, but it's the place they go and jump around with their pals, that can be really powerful. And then the kind of reverse of that, if, um, if you're part of a community that's actually the parkour community is relatively comfortable in material terms but some of your favorite spots are in more deprived areas like are you being a responsible guest and like are you being are you are you bringing um the yeah like the radical potential to that space in a way that is positive for the people who are already there who are not elites or who are not um who who if they're policing their space it's maybe to protect it um because of experiences where they, they don't feel safe in that space. And actually, uh, it's not always about getting in a fight with security. Like, I don't think anyone on this call would be interested in that. But so, you know, sometimes it can be a conversation with residents uh, and passers-by in a space where actually you don't have any more right to this space than they do. Like, you absolutely, like, one of the cool things about parkour is it, it, it does give you that little bit of license to spaces that 
you otherwise might not feel comfortable in. But also it doesn't give you more of a right, I think, than anyone else. And that's quite important. And it's as much yeah, about proper practitioners. Sorry, I was just gonna say as much about proper practitioners, like finding those connections as well as the general public being like woken up by parkour. Yeah, I kind yeah. of, I really want to build on, sorry, Caitlin. Yeah, um, uh, yeah go ahead, you go. Um, I want to build on um, two common narratives that exist within discussions surrounding the parkour community that I think you guys are challenging, but I don't think that, but I think you probably want to address. The first one being um, parkour gyms, that one of the general reasons why it's, it's argued they are a good space is that they are a safe space for people to come and try parkour and therefore they make parkour more accessible. And I want to contrast that with what you guys are talking about here. Um, and I've got one of, let's go with that one and just give you guys a quick response to that. And then I'll get another one which will get you back into the conversation you were just having. Sure, before I respond, can I just quickly tack on to what she was saying that like, I think that parkour like, like has to exist in this like kind of weird duality where at one end like public practice is inherently subversive because you're, you know, challenging what the rules, the, the rules, the assumed rules, the inherent rules of that public space is. But at the same time, for parkour to really be successful, it needs to be like integrative with the community. So like space and community being separate things, subversive to the space, but integrated with the community because as you're saying, like you come into a community space, um, the space has its own structural rules, but also the community has its rules for functioning. And if they feel like you're trying to come in and subvert their community, um, then you're not going to feel welcome. So it's like one thing to, sub to, to like subvert policy and space is another thing to subvert the people who actually uh, inhabit that space on a regular basis. And if you really want to be able to have like the maximum impact of both, you need to like basically make peace with the community and show them that like subverting the rules of space isn't going to subvert their practices of community. Um, and like the best thing that parkour can do to be the most powerful in public space is to integrate inside their community. That's sort of, we talked a little bit briefly about like Vauxhall mm -hmm. and like why it, why it got uh, deconstructed and a huge part of that being that the, like one, the space wasn't heavily used by the community and then there was, uh oh. We can hear you and everything is everybody. fine. Uh, okay, we can hear, like, we've been able to hear you the whole time. Okay, cool. I was like, everyone just disappeared. Um, Vauxhall, uh, like uh, the community that lived around that space was not involved heavily in that space and nor did the parkour community try to create community with that community. And so while the space was useful and was repurposed because the community didn't care about it, the community was not gonna obviously take care of it. And thus like the, the less people who care about a space, the more likely it is gonna be slated and revisioned for something that's more valuable to the larger community. Um, mm -hmm. Sorry. Uh, go to the gym thing though. Do you, did you want to jump into gym or I can jump into gym? Um, do you want to quickly do the gym thing? Because I have a another piece which will tack onto that nicely, but I do want to answer that gym piece to anyone because it's such an obvious critique of what you're talking about right now. Yeah, I feel like the gym, the gym question, the gym con the conversation is a very long one, but um, I do think gyms have value um, as like training spaces um, and also a place for a community to like, create identity. But I think if they're not attached deeply to an outdoor practice. Again, sort of like, I don't really feel like we're teaching parkour then. And also gaining the, the benefits of parkour and some of the mindset elements and the community elements and the subversive elements of like space deconstruction and reconstruction is lost inside of a gym because a gym is um, 
uh, extracted from the public eye. And I never have to, if parkour only existed in gyms, I would never have to interact with it. And its power is essentially taken away from parkour. Like parkour has very little power. I mean, there's personal power, which you gain through it, whatever, but in terms of like political and social power, um, kind of like that's lost in the gym, which is what's interesting to me about the practice. So, mm-hmm. so I think then, the, the... do you want to go well, yeah. well, it's just, this is the gym question is complicated. There's kind of two things for, for me that I think are, are really valuable critiques of saying like, well, I think to be fair, I don't think me or Caitlin are saying all training should be outside. I think we're saying most training should be outside, but the, like, I want people to, able to make a living out of parkour because I want people to be able to make a living and do parkour and sometimes those two things otherwise kind of can come into conflict and parkour gyms can be a way of earning income right um like we've seen what's happened when gyms have been forced to close because of COVID-19 and people are out of work and and that's not something I think is good but so yeah it's more of a like everything in moderation vibe um and I think like most safe spaces if we want to use that phrase uh, they're always kind of a compromise. They exist because the people who need that safe space can't find it in the real world. And people who parkour are not at threat in you know, the real world in the same way that uh, like women or queer people or people of colour might be. And there's reasons for having queer spaces, uh, for example, while still having pride. You know, like, <laughs> one doesn't negate the other <laughs> at all. It's a bit of a like, lazy analogy. But I just want to say that like, you, you have those spaces so long as um, the need for them exists. And having those spaces doesn't mean you don't think the rest of the world should also be safe. And so when you're talking about like green, like somebody's never done parkour before and really isn't comfortable being outside, um, that's, I can talk quite a lot about the gym thing, but basically like it's completely fine to have a gym for that purpose. And it can be a really positive uh, kind of like clubhouse for community and have a really good influence in that way um but it's yeah it's not the kind of shy folk who are just like worried about being out on their own it's it's more like i was talking to cam johnson you know pal who's obviously head coach over at the hala in hamburg which is a really cool space but he had admitted that all his training and all his socializing and all his working had ended up in that one space and it floored him when he didn't have access to it because of covid 19 for a while and he really struggled getting back outside and let me the chat about it. And it was because he, the, the community had almost segregated itself. And if Park was mm-hmm. just relegated to like one warehouse or one park, then it loses the benefits, not just for the wider world and subverting all those norms, but for the practitioners to connect with the real world and to uh, use Parkour's potential for good in, in other places, I think. Yeah. I think also one of the goals of gyms, like that I've heard people, at least in America, we have a very large gym culture. One of the goals of gyms is to help normalize parkour and make it safe as an idea for people in the public to interact with. And um, while on some level, of course, having higher volumes of people participating, raising awareness is important. Um, if the practice is not put back in public space, that, that will still not be achieved because it will still be an idea. They go in the gym, it's safe. There, it's safe. But out here in public, this is my space and so like that goes back to like needing to integrate with your community needing to be in the public eye um in order to really achieve the ends of like the goals of many people's gyms Mm. i think um what i really i don't want to spend too much time on this because i think you guys have a more interesting discussion about public spaces to have but i do really kind of 
I think it's important that we take a moment to kind of say gyms are good and they have lots of purpose, but that's not what we're talking about right now. I think both of you did nicely. But if I can pull you back now to public spaces, um, what I would love to really understand is another common critique and another common narrative you hear surrounding people going into um, public spaces. And it's probably mostly built up around London's culture. Is this idea of the privileged young man going into the um, poorer region spaces and using them and parkour parkour is subversive suddenly becomes the privileged going and using someone else's space and using it and using it as they want to do so how do you see that in terms of this idea of us going in and using spaces and building narratives and spaces and what advice would you have for those people who are going into those spaces and doing those things potentially not in the way that you're talking about Right. Yeah, I was gonna say at the start, like as I said, like parkour practice has the like subverts like the rules of space, but it should not be subverting like the community that like Mm -hmm. inhabits that space. Because as soon as you start to put yourself as at odds at the community that inhabits that space more regularly than you, that's you're gonna end up with conflict. That's we're gonna end up with like clashes with the public and people telling you to leave and signs appearing in long term and also negative policy changes. Um, if the community ends up like being a part of your parkour community, acknowledging who you are and what you contribute, like if there's something you bring to that community, um, they're more likely to support, you know, changes in the future or support your participation in those spaces. But to just go in and appropriate a, a, a community space for your use at the expense of other people's uses is irresponsible practice. You know, public spaces for the public, which doesn't mean you have more of a right to be in that space than others. This is always something I've had a bit of a, and I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but um, one of the problems I always have with skateboarding specifically, and I as a skateboarder, is that skateboarding takes over public spaces. Um, mm-hmm. So it practices often at the expense of other people in public space. It's hard to cohabitate um, a public space that skateboarders are in. Not always. Sometimes it works out well. I've seen a couple occasions in New York City. But for the most part, where skateboarding practice exists, it's really hard for other public functions to exist. And so um, that's why there, I think, was such a big public pushback on skateboarders in public. And now you see like hostile architecture emerging that's anti-skateboarding with the skateboarding clips and making quick surfaces. You know, that's because the skateboarders never found a way to reconcile being and cohabitating in a public space. And for parkour practitioners, it is a challenge. I'm not saying like it's easy. Like there's no like, here's five steps to integrate into your community, uh, proven to work every time. Um, every community is a little different. It has different tolerances, especially if they've never been exposed to something they're very used to using their space in their way. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't have a right to be there, but that, again, you need to find a way to practice that also doesn't detract from the public uses of the other people in the community. So, you know, if you go in with, you know, third, 30 people or even 10 people go into a park every single day and use all the benches, you're also depriving people who used to be using those benches of their use of the park. And this is like a weird example, but like, but that is essentially like realizing your use potentially shifts someone else's use. And you never want to be doing something where it takes away, like it takes away the opportunity for other people to participate, which going back to like fear tolerance, it's like sometimes people watching are afraid to be nearby. And Mm -hmm. Of course, you're gonna feel like, well, I should be able to do whatever I want in space, and that's totally valid. But 
if your long-term goal is to integrate into your communities so that your practice at any style is like accepted, different spaces require different approaches. Maybe you know that in that park down the street, you could do it everywhere. You could flip off the building, but uh, you know, maybe the, the park in the main square in town, maybe all you could do is jumps and bounce for now because everything else seems to scare people. Um, and it seems frustrating, but that's actually a part of like um, bridge building and a community yeah. building and integrating is like, you have to take responsibility for your practice, not the person. You're touching yeah. on that um, freedom from and freedom to idea. Like your freedom to do parkour in the space can't detract from someone else's freedom from their space being disrupted. Yeah, and also like nothing is an inherently like a transformative kind of good. Like punk is really cool and uh, subverted loads of norms, but also like was really shitty and racist and sexist and homophobic in lots of different ways. And like wasn't necessarily, you know, it, like you can you can have like subversion within uh, like a concept or a practice, or whatever that that is positive because it um, it punches up essentially like the concepts. Like I'm trying to stay away from uh, all my politics degree jargon. So punching up is like a really simple concept in comedy. And the idea is that you can only make jokes about people if they have more power than you as opposed to less, right? Mm -hmm. And so subversion should be punching up, right? There's no point subverting someone who's got nothing. If you then come around and like screw around with their life even more, that's not cool and radical, that's lame. Um, and like, I guess there's an example, like I've seen this happen a few times and it winds me up something rotten where like sometimes quite well-known guys who are traveling internationally will be jamming in a city and a little kid, like like under 10 little kids will be just passing through the space and getting in the way of, the, of like their line. And they start swearing at the little tiny kid who's like literally doing the same thing they are interacting with the space. And it's just like, yeah, it's, it's, that is not radical. That's very uncool. <laughs> and it's a totally um, like, oppositional to what is truly interesting and powerful about parkour, which is instead of the kid getting sworn at for getting in the way of the elite guy in that situation who had more power, who had more experience, who was more comfortable in the space, um, instead of that happening, what you actually want is for them to, to sh find their common interest um, their shared interest, which is mucking around and playing in the space and both making the most of it and, and to an extent bonding over that. And I have also seen that much more often in jams, which is why mm -hmm. I think on the whole, they're still, still for the kids. Um, but that's exactly like those guys, as far as I'm concerned, like stay in the gym forever. Don't train outside because clearly you should not be there. Um, yeah. But I think isn't there the, also an argument the there to to expose them to these cycles and these interactions as often as possible and try and well if they're going to learn and behave themselves then yes i, I I'm, a, I'm a big kind of believer that you have to be exposed to something to you know to, to different ideas to challenges to kind of grow yourself if you if you stay in the same environment with the same people your whole life it's really, it's really hard to to change the things about yourself that are maybe less good for you or the people around you and so generally speaking that is how it works and so it needs other people to challenge that when they see it um, and kind of not let it go unchecked. But that can be scary too. And that comes back to the original kind of power question about even within a jam context, there are power dynamics and people, one of the reasons why people might want to go to a class in a gym is that the power dynamics are safe for them and they feel comfortable there where they don't actually feel safe or comfortable going to chat at the jam and calling somebody on their nonsense or asking for help for a certain thing. Mm. 
that sort of that, that idea of uh, community self-regulation comes in really strong there. Um, and it's not an easy thing to do. And obviously communities will have to hold different values and it will be, it's definitely a problem. I'd love to kind of move into a point where we can have a wee talk about um, the benefits of the radical jam culture that you're both espousing here. And also sort of like a little startup kit for people who are interested in this idea. How do they move forward with these ideas? I mean, for me, it, it kind of starts with learning about the spots that you love, like learn the history, who else uses them, why they use them, what their lives are like, and see if you can practice empathy and, and some kind of solidarity. Uh, I want to see, I, I would love to see, and I, I think it's, it's, a, it's an integral part of parkour's potential. Um, but I appreciate that we've all kind of got our own parkours. <laughs> um, that that it, it has the possibility of finding common ground uh, amongst really different groups. Um, so if you're talking about those young, strong, uh, often white, not always, um, but like more middle class guys or more well off guys coming to a, a house in the state, like realizing that they actually have really common purpose. With the folk who live there who want to see their their space um usable and livable um i think that's that for me would be really cool so so really thinking about who else in the space and why they're there and work out what you have in common maybe um and see see in what ways that space supports you and then like be responsible and think what ways can you support the space i guess which kind of touched on what caitlin was saying in terms of the kind of bridges between communities yeah, so thinking, uh, I, my brain went to the second part of your question about like if like creating and leveraging parkour more positively in public spaces. So like, I think anytime like you need to start with like, what's your vision for that space or what's your vision for you inside that space? Is it that you just want that community to accept you being there? Do you want to run? Do you want to see a park built? Whatever it is, right? Like what's your vision for that space? And obviously it's not possible for all of your training spaces. Um, you can't necessarily connect or find people or potentially bridge the gap in a lot of spaces because they're just too set in what they are right now. But start with division and then begin with progressive practice, which is number two. Um, like that was what, going back to like, should you be flipping here or doing crazy big jumps or maybe should you just be balancing and introducing the visual ideas uh, to the public. And then part of that, engage with the public, share, talk to people, tell them what you're doing, invite them to participate with you. Feel free to give some teaching opportunities. And then I think mo most importantly is number three, um, become a participating member of the community. And so don't just go in and take from that space, like as in like, you know, using it for your own need, but like, how can you also participate in the larger community using that space? Um, this is gonna think about larger public spaces that have more uh, regular uses. A lot of public spaces, and again, I can speak a little more to America, I'm a little less familiar with European public space uh, caretaking but a lot of public spaces in America usually have community groups or community centers or uh, friends of associations or neighborhood groups. You can find them online. I mean, like I'll park, I live literally right next to a park. It's a tiny little park, it's nothing of a park, but there's actually like a, a really like strong Facebook community group around it. And so going in there and like offering to run a free class or if there's events, you know, volunteer to have a booth or bring a little thing, or I, I don't know, but like there's different ways you can obviously do this, but the more you can make yourself a part of your community 
where they see you as a member and not just an intruder, the more likely they're going to accept your practice and also listen to your ideas about how to grow and develop and change the space. Um, and I think that that kind of goes back to like problems earlier is like what parkour, a lot of parkour practitioners end up doing is casting themselves as outsiders coming in versus like, you know, a new neighbor. Like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not an outsider coming in, I'm, I'm your new neighbor and I want to coexist with you which means I will compromise some of my practice if you'll compromise some of your whatever uses. Um, and so I think that that's like less of like, I'm gonna force my way in and more like, I wanna be part of this conversation because I'm be part of the conversation. Um, yeah. But again, I think a lot of people don't have the patience or not willing to exercise the patience um, to participate in that way. Or they feel an overwhelming sense of like, like I have a right to this space and like, Yes, you do, and you can keep doing what you're doing, but you always find conflict. And I'm like a lot of this is a proposal of like a more peaceful path towards practice in public space and finding integration and expansion of parkour. Yeah, and that's like a, that's like a long term I think effort as well. It takes quite a lot of time and dedication for people yeah. to to actually make happen. Um, but for anyone who thinks that sounds like a lot of work, which <laughs> it can be, it's also just and um, not responding aggressively when you're challenged in public you know especially if it's a space that's yeah. like there's differences when it's you know if it's security guard or it's like a corporate office block there are slightly different dynamics at play than if it's a genuine shared public space or like i say like council estates in the uk have this incredible architecture um as a weird quirk of brutalism um and that's in that space like you might not live nearby, you might just be traveling through, for example, you might come to a jam. So it's not feasible to be on their Facebook group or like coming out for the cleanups yeah. or whatever. But it's totally possible to just say hi in a friendly way if you see someone staring and have a conversation with them that is not confrontational. It's much more about like, ah, oh, I'm here because I'm really excited by all the way your, you know, your architecture set up and this is how I'm just staying fit or whatever the, the language is that is most appropriate to communicate with that person at that time. Uh, I think is is a really has a whole world of potential in it as well and and every time you have that interaction the other person goes away and they'll know next time there's someone in the space that mm -hmm. they don't automatically need to be quite as suspicious um, so there's that kind of idea of being representative of the community and then in the, in the longer term sense that Caitlin was talking about there's also I think strong themes of being strong to be useful in that if it's if it's like a letter pickup or you know, whatever it is, if you're helping someone move house who lives nearby, like that kind of thing, like there's very physical, practical, be strong to be useful stuff that doesn't actually require you to be some sort of like hulking athlete who's knocking out huge jumps, but it's just about being useful with whatever strength you've got and, and being that kind of like more, try to contribute overall a more positive impact than a negative one. Because like, let's not lie, like we do wreck structures, like folk who say that parkour doesn't do any damage are kind of lying. Like we've all, there's a rail in every single city that is massively bent out of shape. Because then like, you all know the one <laughs> that I'm talking about. And um, because someone's done like any number of like huge rail piece on it. So like acknowledge that, don't lie about it. But say like on the whole, we're trying to contribute more than we're taking away from spaces. And I really want to highlight what you said there too, is like noticing uh, and being vigilant and noticing when people are paying attention to you and being proactive in the communication. Like, don't wait for someone to say something to you. If you see someone watching or potentially curious, like, or like having just being vigilant in your practice, like, it's a little scary. I know, especially if you're introverted and a lot of people parkour are, but going up and like making like conversation, like, hey, 
notice you're watching like we're doing some parkour uh have you ever heard of it and like i know it's like it's obviously a fake conversation here but there's ways to also just in introduce it before your approach there's also a lot of people are afraid to approach and ask questions but it's a, again a bridge building opportunity and so um which means more personal responsibility i mean i, I recognize that a lot of things it means like every person in their outdoor practice has more responsibility and that a lot of people just i just want to go off and train and do my own thing it's like yes you can but like parkour people as change makers and like i mean that's kind of like how i've always perceived my practice is like creating change in my community by changing people's perspectives by changing the space itself um that's like where the real power of parkour lies and so like choosing to be a part of that and take on responsibilities what that means um I, like i said i personally found more power in my practice and more appreciation for my practice and like most of the communities i've been able to be a part of like have come to know and also like respect uh, parkour and people within their spaces. So yeah. one of the things that you've kind of touched on there that we do want to lean into is this idea of responsibility towards these behaviors um, and whether or not it comes down to the individuals jamming or whether or not there are structures that should exist above that. Um, this idea of leadership within a community. Oh yeah. I know what you're uh, saying. <laughs> uh, do you want to just touch on those ideas a little bit? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if a lot of people agree with my belief on leadership, but like um, something I like we talk about in Park Provisions at least is that like we believe that everyone's a leader. Um, you might not be leading others, but you also lead yourself and your life. Um, and that means it comes with responsibility and having integrity and um, honoring yourself in that way and honoring the community you're a part of. And uh, I think that, to, to step outside of that for quickly, um, I think parkour, and people again will debate with me on this, but I think leadership is actually really valuable in any community. Um, I think when you have a united voice or a united set of voices, it's just be one person, be a collection of people in a leadership capacity representing their community um, there's a lot more opportunity for, in, in America specifically, negotiation um, and change making at a high level. And I'm, I'm thinking about here, like, the opportunity to talk to local government, um, get large-scale uh, changes to physical spaces or to policy. Um, oftentimes, this does take the concerted effort of a few dedicated individuals who are willing to, again, take on the time and the energy and, like, to represent parkour, to revisit the same conversations. I mean, like, when I lived in New York City, I think I had the same couple of conversations as they were trying to build a park. They have a park up in um, Riverside Park now, uh, one of the lap set style ones. But in the early ages of that, like I got broken the same conversation like 10 times about like, is this safe? And it's like, you have to have the patience and someone who has the patience to engage in those conversations, but also the wherewithal of like the willingness to play the political game and the willingness to um, step outside your own personal interests to represent the community interests, which is very different and difficult. Um, I'm not saying it should be someone who just goes and takes that position. Obviously, if someone ideally is representing the community, but I do think leadership, um, having like community leadership is really valuable because um, also it gives a sense of organization because if your local government reaches out to your community, if like 10 people respond with all mixed messages, it weakens the ability for the community to do anything, um, especially because our communities are so small it, regionally. Um, and so, yeah, I think having like clear, at least clear like voice, clear leadership or clear coordinated responses is actually really important for 
like high level progress to come about inside American, at least, yeah. at least inside American government structure and how blocks you set up. In some ways, you're, you're talking about the most basic concept there is almost unionizing parkour people coming together and forming groups and then having a voice as a group, which I'm sure Nina has opinions on. Yeah, I keep trying to persuade all the Access Parkour coaches to form a union just in case Edge becomes a massive despot. I would recommend every parkour coach to join a union. If there isn't one there, form one. Anyway, and uh, on a more like practical basis back to this question in particular, I think it's, it is on all of us to, to lead by example where we can, but I think it's important to recognise that people have different levels of resources. Um, and so the kinds of responsibilities we're talking about here in an ideal sense can cost more for some people than others, whether it's long conversations with strangers, whether it's long conversations with people in power, um, whether it's being comfortable in certain spaces and not others, that's, that's different for everyone. So I do think that there's, there's a bit of a gap between like the theory, like my idealism about parkour's subversive nature and it being kind of free form everywhere in the city and everyone does it versus the practical realities of getting stuff done or getting stuff changed. Um, and a lot of my day job is essentially sitting in rooms with um, either, yeah, government officials or elected members of parliament and explain to them why they're wrong and a thing needs to change or why they're right and why they're wrong. <laughs> um, and sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. Um, and there's also, there's like a practical constraint. Like if you've ever tried to put 50 people in a room and have them all say their piece, like it, it like it's really hard, and there are there are good um, there are good techniques in some like anarchist organisations where they they have they really work hard. I mean, not just the jazz hands; there's other stuff as well. Um, but yeah, <laughs> the, the, they work really hard to to make sure that you don't need that. Um, but again, it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of dedication. I think what's maybe most important for leadership within parkour is that leadership. Um, is not having power over others, it's others loaning you their power for a particular purpose. And I think we're so used to thinking of leaders in the rest of the world as people who have power over, you know, they control something, um, whether that's your boss in a very like literal kind of obvious way, or whether it's something more subtle, um, that it can be hard to separate notions of leadership from that version of leadership um, but I think it's possible to have a leadership that is based much more around, again, the idealized form of a trade union, which is not actually what happens sometimes, but it's about loaning power to an individual for a particular purpose to represent something that you've all agreed on. Um, and that's very different from someone taking it upon themselves to be a representative voice for a bunch of people um, and or telling them what to do, which is not cool. Um, and that's different to like the peers challenging each other we talked about at a jam. It's not mm -hmm. about someone who's in charge of the jam. Um, and that's, I didn't touch on that at the start, but another reason why jams are, have radical potential is because they're collective effort. Like it's really unusual. Like, occasionally you'll have one person who will set up a jam for a particular purpose, but they don't run the jam. Like nobody runs a jam once you get there. People, people collectively decide what shape it takes and when they move to the next spot and when they don't and all that kind of things. So I think that's mm -hmm. quite cool as well. So one of the really interesting things that um, occurs to me as you guys were discussing this idea of leadership is that there are many different forms of leadership that we've touched on or we need to touch on in order to make these things happen. One is um, this much more institutionalized kind of leadership 
which um, is where we have to go and talk to elected officials and we have to talk to people who make large scale decisions. But you've also kind of come up against this, this other piece built around going into digging down into one specific location and showing leadership about the way you engage with that location. Um, and this sort of leadership seems to be more about talking to local residents and organizing cleanups and looking after things when they break and showing some initiative around something very, very small. That feels like it might be something that's a lot more accessible to people and actually might be worth highlighting as another form of leadership. Um, so what kind of steps would someone interested in that sort of leadership look to be taking? Yeah, and actually to speak to Nina, she was saying that like Jams actually had a leader and I actually think that like uh, when you're jamming with a big group, like there should be some understanding of who will take lead if there is an interaction that's negative or in the public that requires more of a coordinated response or who takes, and like, and I about, like who takes responsibility for the space and not everyone has the wherewithal or the willingness to do so, but it's like, okay, it's like we have a jam and say a newcomer shows up, like, who's going to take responsibility for ensuring or connecting with this person and bringing them in and having the conversation and showing them some things. Who's going to take responsibility um, talking to the public? And obviously leadership responsibilities can be distributed, but like there needs to be like leadership uh, activity is present and needs to be understood. Like if you have four different, you have people in that group, in a in jam group, for example, have four different um, beliefs on how we should respond to police um, response, you're going to have a pretty big problem or if like you know no one in the group is friendly or welcoming or directly engaging with newcomers you're not going to end up retaining a whole lot of people so there is also like the social personal responsibility that exists inside a jam space um but that's also a form of like personal responsibility that and like leadership that people can display every day the regular practice is like again showing vigilance and engaging with the public recognizing when you might be affecting someone else's experience and taking responsibility for it. Um, being willing to talk to authorities in a patient and like polite way and be willing to leave if you're asked to leave. Um, not everyone agrees with that, but that's like, I feel like that that's a necessary step in the peacemaking process um, between parkour and the public. I think yeah. that's what you're saying is really interesting because um, that's, that's not how it happens. Like, that's it's really interesting because uh, within the Scottish jamming community, which is what I can speak to, uh, in those situations where they're like someone, a security guard walks up and says, "Who's in charge?" Our answer is no one. Um, I don't know if you want to speak to that idea, Nina, because it's yeah. Uh, I think again, there's maybe a bit of a gap between the ideal version uh, of like that event and and what is perhaps most practical in, in other circumstances. I think if, if everyone uh, is behaving responsibly, it, it's on everyone to make anybody feel welcome. It's on whoever's closest to the police officer to answer their question in, in a way that de-escalates the conflict rather than escalates it. Um, I think in some circumstances, if you've, if you've organized a jam, like for example, like if the, like classic patrol jams, like kind of leave no trace style letter picks followed by jams, you know, someone's obviously taken on responsibility for that. Um, and if somebody mm -hmm. wants to get, uh, have an in-depth conversation, it usually makes sense for it to be with the person uh, who's put effort into that. But I, 
I don't know if it's yeah if we're if we're talking ideally it shouldn't be necessary to have appointed jam leaders in that way um if folk are on the same page that but in the situations they're not like you described Caitlin um then it's it's not quite as simple as that either because if people do have different uh yeah if people do want to approach a situation differently I'm not sure they'll always agree to one person being the leader in that circumstances and you still might end up with a bit of like internal conflict when the external one happens and like I do think the point about leaving is a good one though um like with whether it's classes or jams like I was jamming once we were at the Anderson estate in Glasgow and somebody actually pulled a knife on us for a bunch of very complicated reasons but like Obviously, it's stupid to try and like, and like we talked to we talked to him, to him enough that he put the knife down and sort of he wasn't super well, but went away. But we stayed out for a bit later, and we thought we'll leave it after about twenty minutes because it, it like he lived there. Um, what had happened is he walked into a slack line like right in his neck. He just hadn't seen it, and so he immediately like was embarrassed and angry, and all these people who were strangers and didn't know about his face. And in that, it made more sense for me to talk to him because I was a girl and I was unthreatening compared to like David Banks and Tim Pierce or both. <laughs> like big, no, strong, no. scary-looking men who'd like to say no. Yeah, potentially, right? Um, and so I think there's, yeah, there's definitely a time and a place to say no. But even if someone just says, if, if someone's um, not taking the time to engage with you, there's no point running after them and trying to get them to have a sensible conversation there. You kind of have to respond mm-hmm. on the basis of of what they give you. Um, yeah, you find that little bit of an open door. I wonder if, uh, I, I would love to continue that conversation a little bit more because I wonder if it is a, a cultural phenomenon or if it is just something where different people in different places can have different viewpoints because there's clearly not a correct answer there. There's just two points of view. Um, can well, we, you want to go quickly I'll just quickly say that I feel like in a lot of my again Americanized experience, I actually haven't had any run-ins into uh, with um, authority or security when I was in Europe. My time's training there, um, mm-hmm. so I felt pretty positive experience. Um, but in America, the few times that I've been um, requested to leave or where security has come up and asked us about that, like uh, the person who's talking to security does become the leader of the group, as in the person in authority or in security. Uh, perceives you as the leader speaking for the group because yeah. that's how they understand authority and that's how they understand leadership and so like while you might not perceive yourself as the leader of the group they now are taking you as the representative of the whole group and community because um, you're the one choosing to speak to them um, that's obviously speaking inside the power structures inside American like socialization but um, but again I think oftentimes uh, people asking to leave is a byproduct of like fear and not understanding what you're doing um and not necessarily because they don't agree with it and i think that like that's also on pro like if someone asks you to leave leave um because if they're at that if they're at that place either they're like not in a position of power to give you authority to stay or um they're afraid enough in some emotional or social capacity that um you're probably not going to have a terribly productive conversation that's going to change their mind at this juncture um mm-hmm. but that's just cool? like again my experience is no, I think we, we sit at a really interesting place because um, the previous generation that went to random spaces and began using them and appropriating them were the skateboarders. And the legacy left by skateboarders is those confrontations are aggressive. So I think you've both 
touched on the really important point, which is that not being aggressive is probably the first port of call just because it defies expectation. And then not being aggressive and then leaving, but probably also coming back is generally the way that I have been advised to deal with that by people who know more about this than me. There's a really cool thing you can do that's very easy is you can preempt them asking you to leave by saying as soon as someone comes up to you and you get a sense that they're like not super happy the situation, you can say, we're really happy to leave. Uh, by the way, if you've got a problem, uh, what we're doing here is X, Y, Z and explain them and, and show you. And then you can like, some like that's happened a couple of times where they've gone, all right, okay, don't hurt yourself or just be careful or whatever else. And I don't know if they would have said that before or not. Like it's not a very scientific experiment, but it's quite a nice one to just immediately remove like whatever threat that they're, they're worried about. I'd maybe take issue with your skateboarding example as being like like parkour having to kind of reap what skateboarding sold because like people have hated young people hanging around outside since forever like that's it doesn't fair. matter if they're skateboarding or doing parkour or they're like just talking to their friends like there's huge issues um in parts of Glasgow now where folk are concerned about like certain groups of immigrants because they stand outside and socialize and you're like what? Um, and so I think it, it's, it's bigger than just skateboarding. Um, yeah. uh, I feel like we need to actually address one more thing here, which would be demographics. Yeah, so I for think sure. that like, depending on the demographic you're a part of, you definitely have an afforded more freedoms than others. So different demographics are more pro- more oppressed or have, like, again, back to motility, have different levels of motility in a space. In America, yeah, for yeah. example, a white woman with a baby has the highest level of motility. No one's gonna bother a white woman with a late with a baby. But if you're uh, a black teen, you're most likely to be stopped and told to leave and like be suspected of wrongdoing. And that's kind of built into our like obviously racist kind of system inside which America exists. But um, mate, you learned it from the best. But that's that's also going to realizing that like as like the women's gathering that I've run in America now, um, like Canada, America. Um, you know, we've got like 50, 60, 70, sometimes 90 women in a public space. We've never been asked to leave. Not like that I can recall. Someone might pop in and be like, hey, we were. But um, <laughs> but like I've been more more often every time I've been ever asked to leave a space when I've been with mostly men and younger men. And yep. mm-hmm. that's not to say that they're doing something more wrong. That's like something you know, I think it's important to say. Like there are groups that are disproportionately targeted. And um, that's incredibly frustrating if you're part of one of those groups. Like as a, a white woman in America, I've never been personally asked to leave a public space that I've been jumping around and playing in. Um, but I've had plenty of friends who have been. Um, and so I think that like also addressing this element of like who has like authority and power in a public space too is like the group that you're with like will affect who also is interacting with you. And um, yeah, for sure. Persists then classism persists and yeah. how you look and how you don't look will also change the language people choose to treat you. Yeah. That's still part right. of practice. Yeah. Um, and in the UK, like in Scotland as well, uh, like Scotland is still racist. It likes to get on it some sort of progressive beacon. But don't, like Scotland's definitely still racist, but um, because there are, it has a much bigger white population, what is more common to see is because the population is whiter, it'll be like class-based stuff. Um, and so depending on how you speak, your accent, like in, I think, Hedge, you mentioned that you and Gordon, for example, jumping around Edinburgh, having um, conversations with security guards or police officers, explaining politely 
in measured vocabulary what was going on versus somebody who didn't sound like that um, and who maybe wasn't using the same words, could have had a really different experience and be saying like the exact same thing. Um, uh-huh. But it's important to, to recognize that as well. Uh, and I, yeah, it definitely plays a part. And it's like the example I used where there was the guy, like the resident who was literally violent, it made much more sense, not actually for the big lads who might be used to seeing themselves as the protector to talk to him. It actually made sense for me to, because that, was, that wasn't gonna escalate the conflict. I think that also speaks to the value of like having intergenerational training groups. Oh my God, yeah, having diverse like, training groups. Especially in America, teens, the whole teen population doesn't have, doesn't have access like in a meaningful way to public spaces and play spaces. I mean, for sure. I, New York City, my favorite case to make is that like when you turn 13, you're not legally allowed on playgrounds anymore. It's like on signs. It must be accompanied by, must be accompanying a child or be an adult with a child, whatever it is. But between 13 and 18 or 19, whenever you're becoming a free adult that can actually go do something with money, a lot of teens don't have places to go. So they loiter on the streets and then they're not yeah. allowed to loiter on the streets. They get harassed by the cops. And so it's like, we have a bit of a system here where like also you have a whole population of people or practitioners who aren't really permitted, like not even just doing parkour, but to play in general in public spaces. Yeah. Um, and so I think like intergenerational play spaces and inter- intergenerational communities is really important. And sometimes it's hard to reach across to like keep kids who are younger than you or to join those groups. But like there's a ton of value and it normalizes like that activity way faster when you see like someone in their fifties and someone in their, their teens and the in-betweens all training together in a space um, where again, potentially one voice can speak up and get more, unfortunately more respect um, from a position of authority than someone else. Um, but I think that that's like, especially in parkour, I see a big frustration amongst younger practitioners who also are striving, who like, and in Seattle, we have a great, we have a great team, a teams team of kids who are like taking on like their responsibility and like, they're trying to also be good citizens of the parkour community. And it's just like, they still butt up against the fact that like, they're still being perceived as kids and not treated as citizens. And yeah. that's like a frustrating experience, I can imagine. I'm, I'm not sure. I think a question for the parkour community is like, how do we provide support to populations that like are being targeted to be displaced like more often than others? And how do we like help normalize things that everyone can practice and not just people who look like me? Um, yeah, so. for sure. Just times two. Yeah, it's... um. I think it's a really cool place for us to sort of wrap up there, that idea right. of, no, no, I th- no, um, hitting on, we've hit on a number of different ways in which we can talk about um, our personal responsibility to our local environments and how power dynamics play out in our local environments, which I think is re- a really cool way for us to have gone with this conversation. So thank you both for engaging with it and um it was really fun to see where it went. What I would love to do to finish off is going to get a few thoughts from both of you about um, people who want to engage with their environments better, people who want to start actioning these things, um, either tips or resources or books or ideas or where they should get in touch with or what they should start doing, anything like that where you think would be a really good place for people to go next. <laughs> we're both just pausing wait to see um I, I mean I kind of I think I go back to some of the things I said earlier about learning about your spot 
and practicing empathy and practicing solidarity, figuring out what your mutual interests are with the people around you. Um, like, <laughs> like Phil Doyle's podcast with the Motus guys had the point where I just remember him saying something about just because somebody does parkour doesn't mean they need to be your friend. But equally, just because someone doesn't do parkour doesn't mean you can't be friends or make common cause. And actually, you might have a lot more in common in terms of like your love for the space and what you want to do with it than you think. Um, so that, yeah, I think there's there's no one specific resource that I I point people to. But I think yeah, have a Google, have a Facebook, see what's happening locally, um, and don't introduce yourself as some sort of like beacon of radical transgression. Say like hi, I'm so-and-so, I live here, or I, I like to hang out here. Uh, what needs doing, you know? What, what, are, what are the struggles here? Um, and what, what can I do to help address them? I guess that's a bit of a like corny note, but. <laughs> yeah, um, for me, uh, if you're interested in the idea of mobility justice and learning more about the intersection of like the body and space and utility and um, permission. I, I really found the book uh, Mobility Justice by Mimi Scheller, and I'll drop it in the comments. Um, the first half of the book is really relevant because it talks about the body and space um, and the kinetic elite and what it means to have like power just through like ableism and um, the concept of ableism is something you should research. Um, I think all of those are really interesting and mobility justice is only really starting to take stage, I think, in the last 10 years, especially as people address transportation justice. Um, and we exist in there in a small way, um, talking about the body and space, obviously, in the design of cities. Um, I also like the, the uh, Death and Life of the Great American City by Jane Jacobs, uh, which just talks about like people within the city, the, the design of cities for people, um, just as like a foundational text if you're interested in like urban planning in consideration of people. Um, it's like one of the most like important texts in urban planning. Um, there's a lot more, but those are theoretical things. And I think there's some other great ones like tactical urbanism. I can't remember the author of that guy. And um, I have a couple other books I'll list up for Hedge to share. Um, and if you're interested in connecting with me, uh, you can email me um, or Facebook me. I'm not good at Facebook. Don't Facebook me. Email me. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's such a fascinating thing about power politics space. And I, I hope that more people in parkour start really thinking about their own political power through their practice because you can deny it but it does not like remove it from you like the true like yeah. i feel like the, the deepest expression of parkour practice is like in this embracing of the fact that like you can change space you can change community um you can un you can overwrite like historical intentions and architecture and cities by your practice and uh, i think that that's like the most interesting thing about parkour so. <laughs> and i think i just Adding some of the stuff came when I was making think of it. Um, I was speaking mostly, I guess, to folk who are less involved in more official parkour structures when I was talking about, you know, what you can do locally, just starting to understand the spots a bit more. But if you are someone who is in a like leadership position, if you run a gym or you run classes, for example, I think there's the it's really worthwhile being explicit about those things, the people who you have influence over. So saying when you're in a gym, like you it's at, people will come back to your classes if they like your classes. You don't need to worry about them going outside and never coming back to your classes if you promote the outside. I think the explicit say, I can only give you so much in this space. You're missing the opportunity to flex your creative muscles if you never go outside. You're missing the opportunity yeah. to experience 
terrible Scottish weather and see what all these surfaces do when they're wet. You're missing the experience of having that direct connection with the real world while you're training. Um, I think that's a really cool thing. And see what you can do, if, particularly if you own a space, um, to support outdoor events. So whether it's being a hub for something, a registration spot, like a social at the end of an outside event, um, mm -hmm. and try to reach across those, those demographic differences that Caitlin mentioned, whether it's age, for example, I think you can see uh, there's starting to be a bit of a split in terms of the people who are never at classes and maybe the people who are most often at classes um, across all kinds of lines. And and if you yeah, if you have power, if you have any sort of influence, have a real look and see what you can do to connect there, not as a leader in charge of stuff, but as like on an equal footing and respecting like the value that, that both of you have in the kind of parkour world and, and what connections can be made. Yeah, no, um, invitation to invitation to join the jamming and invitation to join jams is a really powerful community builder and building community around parkour is i mean for me it's the be all and end all if you want to be a more pragmatic um capitalist you could just say building community they'll come back and spend more money at your gym um but either way <laughs> Uh, invitation to jams is a really powerful thing and I think we really should be doing it and I really like you hitting on that don't be afraid that they'll leave um, people come to classes because they like them it's a really good final point guys thank you so much for your time it was a really interesting discussion I spent large portions of it just sitting here kind of like rewiring my thoughts in my brain it was really enjoyable to listen to you both talk um, hopefully other people took a lot out of it um, and I'm glad that we got to expand on where we went and hopefully we'll expand and go further with these ideas and talk about them and develop them more over time. Um, anything to, black to say before we uh, sign off from Facebook Live? If, uh, if you really are interested in this, reach out to me because it's uh, something I like to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, likewise. Um, and cheers to Hedge for setting up and having us. Yeah, thank no you. No so worries. Much. All right, thank you so much, everyone. <laughs>